I just want to say good morning. I want to say thank you for joining us. Thank you for choosing to come here today on a Sunday. Uh, you could be doing anything. You could be sleeping like I thought I would like to be doing this morning. And uh, you have woken up and gotten up and joined us. And um, I just want you to know your presence, your participation here means a ton. Um, those of you who are listening online, live through our live field, thank you for doing so. Those of you who are later going to listen to this on your commute, thank you for doing that. Uh, we are in week two of our new sermon series entitled One Brick at a Time. We're looking at the book of Nehemiah. And uh, if you missed last week's launch of this series, you, you have to go back and listen to it. It was really good. Greg nailed it. And uh, yeah, it, we're going to look at the kind of intro a little bit as a recap in a little bit, but I highly recommend you doing that. And one of the things Greg mentioned right off the bat that we want to say again is you're thinking, man... You're going to be talking about building a wall for the next six to eight weeks. What's up with that? And uh, the answer is yes, we are going to be talking about that. This is not intended to make any political stances or anything like that. Um, We actually 100% believe that this story that goes back to like 425 B.C., Old Testament, actually has fascinating things for us to learn about our city here in 2019. And so I really want to encourage you, if you haven't already started, to start reading this book. We're going to be in it for the next six weeks, and I encourage you to read it a number of times. Write down the things that stick out to you, the things that are confusing, the parts that you're like, what in the world is this here for, which is basically all of chapter three, and then keep going and read more. And it's going to help you engage in what we're learning over these next six weeks, and I think you're going to find it's amazing how So far back, it is speaking to us today. That's what we love about Scripture. Um, With that, today we're going to start with a recap, then we're going to dive into chapter 2 of Nehemiah. Um, But before we do that, let me uh, open us with a time of prayer. Jesus, as I stand here in the center by this table with this candle, symbolizing the presence of your Holy Spirit, we ask that you would have uh, freedom in this space. Help us to hear from you. Help us to engage with you. Help us to learn from you today. And God, uh, yeah, help us to hear how this story connects with our story. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So as a quick review, um, if you were here last week, you'll remember Greg showed us a picture of this famous character, Popeye, and his famous saying, it's all I can stands, I can't stands, no more. And some of you are like, who is Popeye? <laughs> uh, and so if you need another example, maybe some of you remember this character, the Incredible Hulk. Um, this is, some of you are like, wait, that's not the Incredible Hulk. That's something wrong, because uh, that's an old version of the Hulk. But he had a saying, don't make me angry. You won't like me when I'm angry because he would go from Dr. Banner into green glory of who knows what. And the reason why we brought this up is because in both these cases, both these characters, they would come to these situations where these phrases would be said. And these phrases, these senses, this experience that these characters had were based on a situation, a circumstance that brought them to a place of serious passion. They are feeling things, and that sense is whatever this is that's going on, this is not how it should be. 
Something has got to change. Something has to be done. And what we learned last week is that Nehemiah had one of those situations. He had been taken off into captivity by the Babylonians during this reign over the Jews. And somehow in that process worked his way up to this very prestigious position within the Babylonian government. A position that's actually one of the most trusted positions in their system to be in. And that was that he was a cupbearer to the king. And basically that is someone who is trying to protect the king from being killed. You wanted to off someone back then, mafia style, you poison their food and they would eat it and they'd be toast. And the cupbearer's job was basically to eat it, taste it first, and they'd wait a minute and, okay, we're good. And then they would go for it. And that was Nehemiah's job. And you can imagine why that would be trusted because if you don't trust this person, they're going to be like, oh, it tastes good, and then you're toast. Um, but they also have to be expendable in some form or fashion, right? Because you don't want to put your favorite person of all time there because they may be dead. So it's this really unique position, and that's Nehemiah's. And what was fascinating about him being in this position as well is that he is a Jew. He was someone who was taken in captivity, but he is in this highly influential, trusted position. It was during this time of captivity when he was in this important position that Nehemiah had heard word that his hometown, the city of Jerusalem, is in ruins. And now, I was trying to think about this. Say you you move away for some reason. Uh, Either you're going to college, you're relocated for a job, or you get married, and you hear your neighborhood, your city, is in ruins. So you're thinking about Wedgwood, and you're like, me, you're thinking, I hope Cafe Javasti is still serving coffee. Or uh, is the Wedgwood broiler still intact? Because um, what could we do if those red seats were gone? Um, this is different. This is not the same. Jerusalem was the key city in the story of God and what God is doing in human history. And it still is very much so today. So this is not just Wedgwood, as much as I love Wedgwood Um, this is a very serious situation that's going on with this particular city. And like Popeye, Nehemiah sees that this city is in ruins, and it breaks his heart. He sees all that he can stand, and he cannot stand anymore. He's like the Hulk. He's no longer Dr. Banner. He is the Hulk, and everything within him is brought to this place of passion and desire. This has to stop. Something has to change. Why? Well, because the city of Jerusalem was an incredibly important city to the Jewish people. The Jews believed that the king, this king was going to come, and the king was going to sit on the throne, and that throne was going to be in this city of Jerusalem, and that with that king was going to come this absolute radical change to the entire world. That's what they believed. And so Nehemiah looks at this city now in ruins and says, hold on, this is not how this can be. If this is the case, all we hoped for and believed would happen isn't going to happen. The one they believed would take the throne and restore all of humanity and bring salvation to all isn't going to come if this is what's going on. Something has to be done. And so this is Nehemiah's problem. And it says in the scriptures that we looked at last week that he wept, not for a day, not for a week, but for 16 weeks. I mean, he was just experiencing all the feelings of this. And if you remember last week, Greg brought up this reality that when we so often experience an issue, 
a problem, a concern with anyone or anything, what we do is we like to blame others for that problem, right? And part of the blame is our way of saying, even though I have a problem with blank, whatever that blank is, ultimately what we're saying is it's your fault, you're to blame, and you need to fix it. And we all do this, right? Be it our workplace, our school, our team, our family, our financial situation, our marriage, our relationship, our government, you name it, we get really passionate. We have all kinds of opinions about whatever those things are, our problems, our concerns, our issues. But with those, we like to put the blame on somebody else and say, you did this, and so it's your job. You need to fix it. And what Greg challenged us with the story of Nehemiah last week was that that actually might be true. Your situation, your circumstance, your concern, your issue, it might not be your fault. It wasn't Nehemiah's fault that Jerusalem was in the state that it was. But what we were reminded of last week is it was his time. It may not be your fault, but it may be your time, your time to do something about it. It may be a place where God is inviting you and challenging you to do something about it. And that was the challenge of last week. What is it that breaks your heart, that you see God's heart breaks over? And what is it for you that brings you to a place where you feel as if you cannot stand it any longer? Something has to change. Nehemiah took 16 weeks to engage in prayer, to process, to feel all the feels, to seek the will of God, and to discern what God is calling him to do. And so the question I have for you is when was the last time you did something like that? Have you ever done that? I'm assuming that, like me, you have had times where you've called upon God, you need help, you need direction, you're you're seeking guidance, maybe for a job or for a relationship or maybe even for healing. But this is different. This is about engaging with God over the things that move you that your heart breaks over, and how God is with you in that. It's about engaging with the Holy Spirit within you, leading you so that you can help collaborate and cooperate with God in making all things new. How often do you make space to do that? Now, as we dive into chapter 2 of Nehemiah, this 16 weeks of process and feeling and discerning, that's all done. And so today we're going to dive into chapter 2, and we're going to see some action and response. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn it to Nehemiah chapter 2. We're going to start with verse 1. If you don't have your Bibles, it'll be displayed on the various walls for you to follow along. And we're going to kind of walk through this kind of Bible study style because there's so much in here. Um, So if you have it, follow along. That'd be great. Here we go, starting with chapter 2, verse 1. It says, In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, When wine was brought for him, talking about the king, I took the wine and gave it to the king. Remember real quick, this is his job, right? Food's been brought in, I'm taking the food, I'm testing it, and I'm bringing it to him. Poison control, that's what he's doing. Uh, It continues, and it says that as he brings this to the king, it says, I had not been sad in his presence before, the king's presence. And the reason why this is important to note is because back then kings made all kinds of crazy rules. And one of the rules back then was you cannot look sad in front of the king. If you look sad in front of the king, it's punishable by death. It's as if the 
the king has got enough issues. I don't need someone who's about to serve me food, who's on poison control to look sad. I don't got time for that. So if you look sad, you're out. So this is a big deal. And Nehemiah is acknowledging this is the first time I showed up and I'm not looking too happy in his presence. There's a chance he could be dead. The text goes on. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. Now, I want you to notice, it says that he felt sad, and it says the king is obviously aware of this. But what's interesting is what's going to happen next is Nehemiah is going to step into what he's being called to do. This is where he first steps into action. And what I want you to notice is the emotion that he feels immediately right as he's about to do this. Okay, this is very important for us to see. So right as he's asked this question, why are you looking so sad? It must be sadness of heart. It says this, I was very much afraid. Understandably so, right? He could be dead, but he is very much afraid. And it says, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruin and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And the king said to me, what is it? That you want. Now, again, remember, Nehemiah has just spent 16 weeks praying, processing, engaging with God, weeping. He, he's been connecting to this stuff that he cannot stand anymore, and he wants to do that. He's now about to approach the king and speak this, but he spent time. He knows what he's supposed to do, and I want you to see what he does before he speaks. It says this. It says, Then I prayed to the God of heaven, And then I said something to the king. So the first thing you want to notice is he's not dead, right? (laughs) He could have just been like, you're out, which is a good sign of the place that Nehemiah had relationally to this king, that there's trust. But then as he has this opportunity to speak to the king, the very first thing he does before he says it, even though he spent all this time processing, is he prays again. It's basically like, okay, God, I know what you want me to do. I'm about to get my chance. This is a big risk. I could be dead. I'm afraid. I am so afraid. Um, I'm praying to you. Help me. I need you. I can't do this without you, essentially. And it's after he prays that he goes forth and says what he needs to say. The other thing that I want you to hear before we move on that's really important about this is because contrary to what you may have been told or taught, When you enter into something that God has called you to do, there's this assumption that that means it's going to be really easy. Like, I just connected what God designed me to do, so everything's going to start going the way it should, and it's going to be easy, and everything's going to work out, right? That is false, okay? There's nothing about that that is true. What we see here is a really big truth that we need to hold on to, and that is that whenever we're stepping into our calling— Whatever that is, it's very likely that we are going to experience something that pretty much any other character in the Bible who is stepping into their calling did, and that is fear. And sadly, what happens is we experience fear, and we think, well, if I'm so afraid, this must not be something God's calling me into. Maybe you've heard that saying or that teaching that God doesn't give us anything more than we can handle, right? Which is bogus. It's a misteaching of 1 Corinthians 10. It's twisted it. It's not true. God gives us stuff we can't handle 
all the time. What I'm doing right now, I shouldn't be doing this. T- leading a church, ridiculous. Teaching in a seminary, no way. Not to mention parenting, being married, exercise, eating well, reading the Bible, going to bed when I should. None of this. I cannot do it on my own. I can't handle this. I need God. And that's a reality that we need to fear, uh, to understand, is that fear is part of this process. And when we're stepping into something that God calls us to do, it's not about us. It's about God. And it's going to make us experience fear, just like Nehemiah does right here. Part of my job as one of your pastors um, or in the seminary class that I teach, is helping others, no matter who they are, no matter what it is they do, to, to listen, to hear the call that God has for them, and help them walk into that. And help them recognize that the fear that they're experiencing is part of the process. And that's what we see here. Now, what we're going to see, too, is, again, He is relying on God. He prays right off the bat. He's like, here's my chance. I'm scared. And he prays. And it's a reminder that we should be praying all the time. This is just one conversation in the middle of his day, and he has an opportunity. And he takes, we don't know how long. It could just be like, oh, Lord, help me. And then he goes for it, right? And I'm just wanting us to see that this is permeating what Nehemiah does. And I hope that it encourages us to do the same. Now, We're going to see that Nehemiah is not the source of what is needed to accomplish what needs to happen, right? But he is in a position where he can do something about it. And so he sees something that has to change. He feels all the things about this problem. His heart is broken. He's moved to a place where he can't stand anymore. He spends time in prayer wrestling with God. What do I do? He fearfully trusts God and prays and then steps forward. That's the pattern we see. Now, look at what Nehemiah says to the king. He's prayed, and then he says to the king this. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city of Judah, where my ancestors are buried, so that I can rebuild it. Now, real quick, what was the city that he heard was in ruins that was breaking his heart? Jerusalem. Isn't it interesting here? That he doesn't say Jerusalem. He says Judah. He doesn't actually name the city, but this general area that he wants to go. Why would he do this? We don't have time to go into this, but, but the short version is back in Esther, we see that the king, the king that he's talking to right now, King Artaxerxes, had a situation with the previous king. The previous king had made a decision to move forward in rebuilding Jerusalem. But King Artaxerxes, when he came into power, was faced, do I continue to do this? And he was advised not to because there was a fear that the Jews would kind of get some motivation to want to rebel, to have their city brought back. So King Artaxerxes actually was the one that said, no, let it burn. And so what that means is that Nehemiah is about to talk to the very guy who was the one that said, this place cannot be rebuilt. He had already made that decision a while ago and said, I want this place down to the ground. And Nehemiah is about to talk to that person and essentially say, you made a mistake. And I want to take over and I want to rebuild it. So Nehemiah doesn't name the city of Jerusalem, but names the city of uh, of Judah. And then he goes on to verse 6. 
Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, How long will your journey take, and when will you be back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. One of the kind of people we've been listening to and commentaries we're reading is a guy by the name of uh, Pastor Seth McCoy. And he says about this section, as I thought was kind of fun, but he's like, if you're in a situation where God opens the door, you're talking to someone in power, whether it's a king, your boss, or whatever, the, the door opens for you to step into it. He says, the lesson we learn here is to go big. Right? Just to go for it. Nehemiah is one guy with a vision to rebuild this city. He's in this unique position and situation, realizes he's going to need a lot of resources to do this. The door is opened, and so now we get to see uh, what Nehemiah is going to ask for in verse 7 and on. It says, If it pleases the king, may have letters to the governors of the trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. What's he asking for here? Uh, code, he's asking for a couple things. First thing is, he's asking the king to change his mind, because he made a decision already, and he's basically saying, will you change your mind? The second thing he's asking for is paid leave. I'm going to be gone for a long time. I got a lot of work to do. Take care of me. And third thing he's saying, basically, is that I want police escort for the 800-mile journey that I need to go on in order to get there. Could you hook me up with that? And what's crazy is that sounds like a lot, but he's not done He continues to go big. And may I have, it says in verse 8, a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so so he will give me timber. Pastor McCoy translates this section and is basically saying what Nehemiah is asking for. He says it this way. I want the Home Depot credit card. I want to rebuild the whole city, and I want you to pay for it. That's basically what he's saying. Now, look what Nehemiah wants to rebuild. It goes on. He says, and may I have a, uh, well, we need this timber, and what am I going to do with it? I'm going to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. So basically, I want you to pay for everything to get redone. I want you to redo the wall. I want to redo the temple, and I want to build a house for myself, and I want you to put it all on the Home Depot credit card. He's going big, right? Now, look what happens. He asks all of this. This is a situation where he's very afraid. He could be dead, and he's going for it. And then the text says, And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my request. None of this happens because Nehemiah is the smartest guy or the strongest guy. He's the best leader. It's not because he is anything. It is because he went to God first. This is solely by the grace of God that this happens. He's on the same page with God. He's stepping into this calling. He's trusting God. He's allowing God's problem to be his problem. And with that, the gracious hand of God was upon him. And what I want you to hear is this is ultimately what discipleship is all about. It's about learning what you and God are capable of accomplishing together. And every one of us was created with a purpose, and God has some design, something he wants to collaborate with you to accomplish together for the glory of God. And it's going to be different from each and every one of you. The class that I'm teaching right now at the seminary, I have six students 
all of which are assessing their call to ministry, and every single one of the things that they're processing is radically different. But they're trying to assess, just like Nehemiah, how the things that are breaking their heart and breaks God's heart and how they can enter into it. And it all looks very different. God has that for each and every one of us. And so the question I have for you, a couple questions, is what are you and God working on together? What are the things that you're looking at in your world that cause you to feel like this can't be? Right? This isn't God's vision for whatever. So much so that you feel moved to work together with God to do something about it. What is that in your story? And the reason I bring this up is because the book of Nehemiah is not just some old story back in 425 B.C. about an old king and a cupbearer and the city in ruins. This has nothing to do with us, right? This is uh, a fascinating story. And if you remember, chapter 1 ended with the little phrase, I'm the cupbearer of the king. So it ends with this statement that Nehemiah is basically the right-hand man to a king, a very powerful king. But in chapter 2, everything shifts. He is now the right-hand man to a different king, the king of kings. And he has a very different project that he's entering into. And that's what we are offered in God, an opportunity to experience the gracious hand upon us as we enter into whatever it is that God is calling us to. And so then the text continues. The king granted my request, it says, And then it says, so I went to the governor of uh, trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent an army of officers and a cavalry. I mean, he got hooked up. This is how this whole rebuilding process of Jerusalem began. And the story is important for us because it's an example um, for us to recognize that this isn't just something that happens for pastors. This isn't just something that happens for prophets. Um, This isn't just for the kings or the smartest or the strongest. This is a story about how the Holy Spirit moves and leads and guides and empowers all of us. That God has a desire to partner with all of us. That the Spirit is calling all of us, no matter who you are and what you do. The bigger question then is, are you listening to what God is calling you to? Are you paying attention to the Holy Spirit at work in you? Are you stepping forward into whatever that calling may be? That's a really good question for us to be asking. Now, after Nehemiah travels 800 miles, gets to his destination, the first thing he does, which is always important to note, is not that he went back to work. He actually takes three days off. He takes a break, which, if you traveled 800 miles, there's no speed train, there's no planes, there's no cars. This takes a long time. He takes a break, which is a good reminder. We talked about practices a while back and the practice of a Sabbath. We see this in Nehemiah. He takes a break. But the other thing that's really interesting is after he takes this break, he's restored and refilled, he actually doesn't tell anybody what he's up to. He arrives, he takes a break, and rather than tell everybody what he's doing, he actually decides to go assess the situation. He goes on tour, if you will. 
And he walks around the walls and the gates to get a clear understanding of the state of things. And this is also an important kind of leadership thing. Because one of the first things you need to do as a leader, and just to be really clear, every single one of you are leaders. Every single one of you. It has nothing to do with the title or a position. It has to do with you having the ability to influence anyone in anything. That's what leadership is. And so a leadership principle that we get from this is that if you want to move people or you want to influence them, what you want to do is make sure that we're all on the same page, that we understand things. And so that's the first thing Nehemiah does is he wants to assess the situation. So it says in verse 12, I set out during the night with few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts for me except the one I was riding on. By night I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and reentered into the valley gate. Now, something I had never noticed before um, in the various times that I had read this that I thought was fascinating was that Nehemiah does his assessment of the situation from outside looking in. Not from the inside, looking out. And I don't know about you, but I absolutely love this. He's assessing the situation from the outsider's perspective, which is really important for us to get as individuals in the church, because when we want to take time to assess things, to find out our current situation, to assess it well, we have to have the right perspective. And so with Christ, with the Holy Spirit, that perspective is always outward thinking. Why? Well, because, again, it's not about us. It's about God. And so we need to understand how our world sees things. We need to understand how others see this. Because what happens is when we start to see how lost and confused and broken and hurt and how distracted our world is from living and experiencing all that God has designed for us, it wells up a broken heart. It helps us go, wait. This is not how this is supposed to be. This is not how God designed it to be. We start to enter into our Popeye moment of, I can't stand this any longer, because our perspective is outside looking in. So the question then is, how often do you make space to listen to, to observe, to see things from an outsider's perspective? Have you ever invited someone to church and then afterwards say, what did you think? Or have you ever asked them to go to church and they say no and you say, why? Have you actually invited somebody to church? That's a good question. Um, why wouldn't someone in Seattle, in our neighborhood, come here on Sunday? These are outsider perspective. When we came up with our name, One Life Community Church, we didn't just ask you all. We actually asked the neighborhood what do you think about this name? And some of them were like, not our name that we decided, but other names that we were pondering, that's a bad idea. And we took that in consideration and didn't choose those names because it was fascinating to see what outsiders thought when they heard something. When was the last time you did that? When was the last time you talked with someone who has a different perspective than you? It's not till after Nehemiah is called by God, empowered by the Spirit, 
moved by prayer, takes a break and assesses the situation from the outside, looking in, that he is able to really engage with others about what needs to be done. And then look what he says. And I said to them, you see the trouble we are in? Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king has said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work, and everything happily ever after. False. If you missed this point earlier, the idea about stepping into our vision, stepping into our calling, not being easy, uh, Nehemiah makes it very clear as he ends chapter 2 that this isn't easy because immediately as they start doing this, what we see is they are confronted again. Look what it says, verse 19. But when... Salabat and Horonite and Tobiath the Amorite official and the Gresham of the Arab heard about it. They mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you're doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. Well, his servants, uh, we his servants will start rebuilding, but as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. Again, it's not going to be easy. Just because he does all this and processes all this and God's with him and he, he, he has this full assessment, he talks to people and people respond, yeah, let's do this. Immediately after, they're ridiculed, they're mocked, they're talked, the king is not going to do well with this. And I want you to hear that again as we're assessing our call, as we're assessing the things that are breaking our hearts and aligning with God's, and you're experiencing some fear about that. We sang a song about you make me brave. The reason why we can be brave in our relationship with Jesus is because the same spirit that Nehemiah is talking to and praying to is with us. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, we have the Holy Spirit with us, in us, as close as our very breath, empowering us, giving us life, leading us, protecting us, providing us speaking through us, giving us vision, and so much more. We don't have to fear. It's okay for us to fear, but we don't have to stop in our fear. And what we see in chapter 2 is in the midst of the fear and the process, courage. And I believe that through the book of Nehemiah, with the Spirit at work in all of us, God is wanting us all to hear that it's our time to step into whatever that calling is and to not fear. And I don't know about you, but I need to hear that. Even in the position I'm in, there are times where my fear makes me stop. Or the sense that it's not easy makes me stop. And I hope that you are invited to engage with a God who is present with you in everything and you see in the example of Nehemiah that we can step forward with courage. And I, I got to tell you, I'm so excited to see what God is going to do through each and every one of us, through this church, as we continue to step forward into this. I'm going to invite our worship team and prayer team to come forward. Uh, as they do, I want to invite you, if you'd be willing, to take that connection card out. I have a couple questions for you. 
basically questions we've already talked about, but just give you an extra moment to, to process with those. And if you wouldn't mind sharing me your thoughts on at least one of these, that would be fantastic. Um, you could just write it down, and then as you leave, there's a wood box at each door. You could slip it in there. Um, but it's a really great way for us to actually process and write down some responses to get it in community so we can be praying for one another. And it's just a great way to hear how you're responding to these teachings. So if you'd be willing to do that, that'd be great. Here's questions to ponder. Number one, again, back to last week. What are the things you're looking at in our world that are cause you to feel like this can't be? That isn't the way God envisions things to be. What are those things that you're connecting with? Number two, what are you and God working on together? Or, if you don't feel like you are right now, what might God be inviting you to join in to rebuild and restore for the glory of God? So if you're not sure what you're connecting with, that might just be a prayer. God, what can I do to cooperate and collaborate with you for the glory of God in our city? Number three, what fears do you have that may be getting in the way of you stepping into your calling? What fears do you have that might be stepping in the way of your calling? I'd love to hear from you. Now, the worship team's going to take a moment to pray instrumentally in just a moment. Um, I'd love for you to engage however you want, whether it's writing down your thoughts, taking some time to pray, to receive, um, to confess, to own, whatever that is that you want to do in this time, take it. I want to remind you, too, over in the corner, prayer team is there. Um, They are absolutely honored to pray with and for you. If you're like, I don't know what God's calling me to do, I I, I encourage you, find other people to pray about that with. Um, But take advantage of that. Um, I'm going to close this in prayer. Worship team will play for us for a moment. We can engage however that is, and then we'll join together for one last song of response. Let's pray. Father, Son, Spirit, I, I confess, I get caught up in what I want. I get caught up in my own opinions and passions. I tend to put it on other people and say it's their fault. You need to do something about it. And yet, God, what I hear in this situation is this invitation to enter into and collaborate and to partner with you in whatever small way I am able to, for your glory to make something right. I recognize and own that I can't do it on my own. None of us can. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would fill each and every one of us with that understanding once again, that we need you. But we ask that you would awaken in us a desire to connect with whatever it is you're calling us to. And not just call us and not just help us be aware of whatever that is, but to actually step forward into whatever that is, giving you our fears and trusting that you are with us. So God, even now as we continue, help us to dream and help our dreams to be your dreams. Help us to hear from you as we engage with you as we step into our world. We ask your blessing upon the rest of our day and this time as we sing and as we pray and we be in community. We ask your blessing upon it in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.